Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, um, I assume you've heard that the once proud Sports Illustrated has been found using AI-generated, non-existent, quote, journalists, although it denies that they were using AI-generated copy. Uh, but look, whatever, that is certainly nothing that would ever happen here because this is the podcast where passion meets insight. Join us as we lace up our gloves and dive deep into the world of boxing, covering everything from legendary bouts to current matchups, iconic fighters to rising stars, and the thrilling narratives that make the sport so captivating. Exactly. Our podcast is not just about the punches and jabs. It's about the stories behind the fighters, the strategies inside the ring, and the pulse-pounding excitement that keeps us on the edge of our seats. We'll break down the latest news, analyze the biggest fights, and provide expert commentary to keep you in the know. And one thing we will never ever do is use AI-generated hosts. No. God, no. Uh, but uh, OK, let's let's level with the people. Uh, what you just heard was the copy you get when you request from ChatGPT a generic intro for a boxing podcast. And uh, it, if I'm being honest, the quality was better than what you get from about 90 percent <laughs> of all actual human boxing writers. Um, by the way, I, I, I'm still waiting for SI to issue a statement admitting that Chris Mannix is a cyborg. That's long been my <laughs> suspicion. And now that it's confirmed that they've been dabbling in AI, I'm dub doubling down on go. my theory. <laughs> exactly. All right. Um, we, uh, us real human beings, have a fair <laughs> amount of business to take care of on the podcast this week. Uh, we will preview Devin Haney against Regis Progray. We'll analyze uh, Ryan Garcia's comeback win over Oscar Duarte. Eric will test me with another round of the fight game. I try to make it two first clue wins in a row. Uh, but that's all bookended by our continuing celebration of 37 years of Showtime Boxing. At the end of the podcast, I'll be counting down my selections for the all-time top five greatest Showtime fights. And I suspect Eric may have compiled a list of his own for this one, too. Uh, but first, uh, this is episode 296 of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. And if we've been part of your regular podcast listening over these last several years, I'm tempted to ask rhetorically... How do you like it? How do you like it? <laughs> I guess this week beat me to it. He is one of the most experienced and indeed best blow-by-blow -blow commentators in the sport. He's called Fights for ESPN, for HBO, and of course, Showtime. He is our very good friend, Barry Tompkins. Barry, welcome back, and we're glad you're able to join us again before they turn the lights off. Yeah, really. It's great to be with you guys. I always enjoy doing your show. We always get a lot of giggles out of it. And despite it all, I'm sure we will this time, too. Yeah, I think we'll we'll find a way to to get a few giggles in, I'm sure. Uh, so as Kieran just uh, said when introducing you, you've called boxing at, at just about every major network over the last 40 plus years. He listed some of them, HBO, ESPN, Fox Sports, of course, Showtime. What stands out? that makes Showtime different from your various other stops. And and I'll note that there there's no need to kiss ass and say purely glowing things at this know. point. So, so, you know, better and worse, what stands out about Showtime? Well, I mean, it, it clearly, I mean, it, it, for me, it's the crew. It's the people that are doing the show. Uh, it, and I know that sounds like hyperbole, you know, that that's the kind of thing you say when you're going away. But, but the fact is that's what kind of kept everything going, you know, uh, not and I'm not just talking about the guys on on air. Although you know, 
Steve Farhead has become one of my closest friends when we were friends before, but, you know, being with him for, you know, 10 of the 12 years I, I was there, um, really he's, he's a special friend, you know, and I, and so that, if there was nothing else, there was, you know, I made that friendship and my wife and I are very good friends with he and his wife, Marsha. And, uh, that's one of the biggest things about it, but, uh, you know, the changeover to Brian Campbell and Brian came in and he's a real pro. He knows exactly what he's doing, you know, and I don't have to worry about him. Uh, somebody was at, oh, I was talking to Rick Phillips, who was our director uh, just yesterday, actually. And and one of the things I was telling him about it is there are very, in my career, which is a long career of doing not just boxing, but a million other sports. I, I don't think I've ever had that feeling of when you put the headsets on, before a show starts, all I have to worry about is my job. Mm. I don't have to think where are the cameras, where are we going from here, how much time do I have from get to get from point A to point B. You know, I just had to worry about my job, what I was saying, and how I was teeing up my color analysts and call. I hope you call a fight right. And I, I, there's always something, you know, that or there's one weak link in a crew. You know, you might have a, a cameraman who's never done a boxing match before. You know, or a, an audio guy, particularly the A2, who's on the floor with us. Um, you know, who really hasn't been around a live event like that and doesn't know when to step in and when to step out if there's something going wrong. There's always something, and you're always, you know, as I've always thought of my job as, you know, I'm kind of like the quarterback. You know, where I'm, I'm getting the ball every play and I'm handing it off somewhere. You know. Uh, or throwing it, you know, and um, those kinds of things can really be disturbing if I'm thinking about, you know, what's coming next, how long do I have to get here, what shot is he going to take if I say this or if I say that, uh, if the mic goes wrong, you know, is there going to be somebody who's competent enough to know when to step in and fix it when, when not, and the list goes on, believe me. Uh, I never had to do that in the 12 years that uh, I've been doing uh, Showtime boxing. You know, it's the best crew. I go off the air every show saying for the best crew in sports television. And I really mean it. It's not just throw them a bone. You know, it's not it's not that kind of thing. They really are. And and almost all the guys on the crew, and I'm talking about everybody from the tape guys to the, you know, the, the, the A2 on the floor, as I said, to the stage manager, to right down the line they would probably and i think i'm pretty sure i'm right when i say this they would they would take a showtime show before they would take a show that paid them better someplace else hmm. just for the same reason that that i'm saying so there's no question about the biggest difference for me with with being at showtime is the crew and, and in my case it started with gordon hall you know i mean you know he's showbox was his baby and it survived as long as it did 100% because of him. Uh, he never let us get bad fights. You know, we always had competitive fights. He would demand that. He wouldn't let a guy drive up, you know, fight a cab driver, you know, uh, and I, it spoke to the quality of our show. I never had to apologize for anything I did in the 12 years I was at Showtime. I don't think we've ever talked about how you ended up with Showbox. What is the story about how you were approached and, that and how you became a part of that team? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. My whole life, my whole career, and I think I mentioned this to you guys before, but my whole career has been serendipitous. You know, uh, so many times, if it weren't for, and this is not an exaggeration, if it weren't for about eight days in my life, I have no idea what I, I may be saying fries with that burger. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, I really, I really don't know. So, um, 
when uh, Fox, I was doing boxing for Fox and football and basketball. I did the Pac-12 conference for 40 years. When management changed, they dropped boxing and the Pac-12 network stopped and or started. And so they weren't doing the Pac-12 anymore. So basically I was out of a gig. And uh, I, I, Steve and I were casual friends, but not, you know, we would talk at events or, you know, for one reason or another occasionally, but, but we weren't besties by any stretch of the imagination. I just, out of the blue, I picked up the phone and called Steve and said, uh, yes. And if you hear of anything, you know, this is what happened at Fox. And, you know, I do have a little experience, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I'd like nothing more than to work with you, you know, him being, being Steve. And, uh, and he called me back about two days later. He said, you call me at exactly the right time because that was when Nick was, uh, failing and, uh, they were looking for somebody and they, you know, they had Kurt Menefee for, for a bit and Kurt didn't want to do it. He, I think he did an adequate job, but he didn't want to do it. So he was stepping away. They had tryouts and there was one guy and honestly, I don't remember his name now who they basically offered the job to, mm. you know, and then Steve told them about me and Gordon said, well, wait a minute. Okay. Let's take a look here. And uh, they brought me in to do a show. And at the end of the show, Gordon just said, okay, you know, obviously you're the guy. And uh, that was the story. So it was just, a hundred percent fortuitous. Hmm. Did you have any sort of reservations or anticipation about taking over from Nick, given that he was such a beloved character and so much a part of that franchise? He was also a very good friend. And I, I was actually closer to Nick than I was to Steve, okay. you know, uh, because uh, when I was at ESPN and I was doing boxing with Al Bernstein at ESPN, but the big fights, I would cover them as a reporter and Nick was covering them as a reporter for CNN. So, uh, so we would, you know, and I knew, I actually knew him. He, I knew him when, when he was at WBAL in Baltimore, you know, uh, because we had a mutual friend. And, uh, and so we used to, you know, our camera, literally, it was a, a real gangbang just trying to get into the locker room, like after a Tyson fight. And Tyson knew both of us and had a soft spot for both of us. And, uh, but it was who can get the thing first, you know, and our camera crews would almost literally come to blows <laughs> And Nick and I would stand back there and say, okay, you got him last time. I'll take him this time. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was pretty close with Nick and uh, I, you know, I don't have to tell you how bad I felt, you know, about mm. what happened to him. I mean, that just, it's just, life's not fair, you know? Right. And, uh, but it was an honor to sit in his chair. I'd, I'd never known that that detail about that they almost had somebody else hired uh, when when you came along. I sure hope whoever that guy is isn't listening right now. This is this would be <laughs> Me too. Uh, pouring and salt I'm, in the I'm, wound. I'm sorry that I can't remember his name either. <laughs> you know him; he's a New York guy. Okay. But uh, I wouldn't want that to happen to me. So I right. can really empathize with what I'm sure he was thinking. Well, it, it worked out nicely for Showbox and for the fans, at least, and for you, if if not for this one unfortunate guy. But. Uh, We've actually asked this same question recently of uh, of your colleagues, Gordon and Raul. How upsetting was it not getting a farewell show box show, you know, having the cancellation come after what turned out to be your last card? That's what that gnaws at me more than anything else, mm. because I, I, I was telling again, I was telling Rick Phillips last night that the last words I said on a show box show is see you next time, mm. you know, and uh, and that show had such a history, you know, I, I honestly, I think it's criminal that we didn't didn't get a last goodbye, you know, in some way, shape or form. Uh, 
because because you know, it was 22 years. I mean, it, it had a a long, long history, and it really served a place. I believe. I I really do. I still think there's a place for it somewhere. I I mean, I sincerely hope. You know, we talk about trying to get the band back together. I mean, that you know that's that's a hope. It may be wishful thinking, but but it's it's a hope because I I do I think boxing itself is a niche sport now, and yeah. I think our show was a niche within that niche sport. Yeah. Um, and I and I think it helped everybody because it was that crossing of the line from prospect to contender. You know, yeah. and and these guys were matched tougher than they'd ever been matched. So. Uh, it, to me, it was the it was the perfect vehicle. Quite frankly, I always said I would I would. It, it's easier to do the championship show than it is to do our show, you know, because there's more research that's you know everything about the two guys in the main event, the championship fight, right. and you don't. You have to cull things in fighter meetings, uh-huh. and, you know that sort of stuff, and and uh, and there's more business in our show. Um, it, it's not an easy show to produce, and I think like when I would watch it back. It looked like it was easy, you know, but it wasn't. But like I said, I can't say enough good things about the people on that show, top to bottom. I mean, there was not, there simply wasn't a weak link. Yeah. We've all done fights in Las Vegas. We've all done fights in New York. Only you out of us here have done fights in Deadwood in yes. Oklahoma City. Of all the off the beaten track locations that you've been to with Showbox. Well, any Sloan, stand out with that any you really liked? Sloan, <laughs> that I really liked. Actually, I like Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, but it's really kind of a suburb of Tulsa, and it's really kind of a happening young people's place. I, I like that a lot. Uh, I'm a foodie. I think you guys know that, you know. So my whole thing is where we're going to eat, you know. And uh, we went to Sloan, Iowa. And so I went, you know, on uh, TripAdvisor to see the best restaurants in Sloan, Iowa. Well, number one was the buffet in the hotel, which was $7.99 all you could eat. So wow. you know how good that was. You know, $9 if you wanted lobster. You know? And number two was Subway. You know? <laughs> so, so I have to say, and Sloan, I, I sent my wife a picture. We were there in the dead of winter one time, and I took a picture out my window. And from Sloan, Iowa, I, I'm I'm pretty sure you can see Cheyenne, Wyoming. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it was just a wasteland. There was nothing there, nothing there. And the people who showed up there to gamble, I mean, brought brought their money in buckets. You know, right? Was, yeah, that was a trip. Wow. Not sure Sloan, Iowa is going to make my bucket list of must visit places. Uh, no, now, I can tell you everything you review. know about it. You can save yourself the, the trip. We went to go to the big <laughs> city and go to Sioux City. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, well, there goes of doing a podcast sponsored by the Sloan Iowa Chamber of Commerce, which yeah, was the top of the list yes, until five yeah, minutes. And ago. the Chamber of Commerce was the waiter at Subway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we are just uh, we're 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 losing all of our Sloan Iowa listeners uh, this week, but uh, you know it's near the end anyway. So yeah. Um, so uh, we're going to be counting down the all-time top five Showtime fights at the end of this episode, actually. Do you have a personal favorite, Barry, whether it's one that you called or just one that you watched as a fan? You know, it's funny. I, and I knew you were going to ask me that question. And, I, and I, I I, did give some thought to it. And, you know, I mean, the obvious one for me, and it wasn't so much about the fight, but it was more about, about the hoopla surrounding the fight was Mayweather and, and uh, Canelo. You know, uh, the fight was terrible. But, <laughs> but the 
all of, you know, it was a big event, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I honestly, guys, I'm, I'm really kind of spoiled because, you know, when I was at HBO, I, I did all the biggest fights. So I was around that kind of thing all the time, you know, and I did do championship boxing as a, as a, no under the norm you know i did it a few times when either mo couldn't do it or they just needed somebody else but but you know my show was was showbox and showbox was a totally different animal you know um i you know i i have the first time i saw and i don't know why this comes to mind particularly but the first time i saw boots ennis i remember thinking to myself this guy's got the goods he's really mm. got the goods and and that happens every now and then you know um not often, you know, but when you see a guy who just clearly know he's got the right people in his corner, he's dedicated to the sport, you know, he's well-spoken, you know, he's a guy who will be able to handle stardom, you know, um, those kinds of things. And, and there were others. And that in Showbox was gratifying to me, probably more than anything else. It wasn't so much about the event itself, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was it was more about watching guys just kind of grow right in front of you to get to that point where they run championship bucks, you know? Right. So, so the memories that, you, that you're taking. Bit of a pivot, but, but I was going to say that it, it sounds like the memories you're going to take with you more are about the fighters more so than the fights. And of course the crew and your friends as well, but in terms of fighters versus fights, it seems the fighters stick with you more. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And quite frankly, there's a lot of them. I could see their face and I could see the fight, but I couldn't tell you their name, you know? Right. <laughs> um, you know, I, there was a Russian kid who, uh, and I, uh, he's a really sweet guy, was fighting in, in, in uh, Miami, Oklahoma a lot. In fact, I think he lived there for, for a short time. He became a champion, but he, he, he could really punch, but he took too many punches. And so his career was very short lived. He's training fighters now. Uh, he was one of Holden's guys. And uh, and I'm, it's terrible. I, I apologize for not remembering his, his name, but he'd always be in wars. So his fights were all, always entertaining. But I remember seeing him right after a fight that he won, and he just looked like you shouldn't be doing this. You know, I mean, you're just going to be walking on your heels at some point. You know, fortunately, he got out of it. Holden got him out of it, and I give a lot of credit to Tony. I think he's one of the good guys in the sport, and uh, he got him out of it. Now I think he's training fighters, but. Uh, I remember guys like that, you know, he was a really yeah. sweet guy, really innocent guy, great looking, really baby faced guy from Russia, married. His wife was adorable. It was, you know, they were, they were the all American couple, even though they were from Russia, you know? Right. <laughs> um, and he was, he, but he was one of those guys you'd watch him fight and you say, okay, get what you can out of this and then get out, you know, because if he didn't, he would not have been in good shape. And, you know, I've seen the other side of that too, where guys stay too long. You yeah. Know? You know, it's interesting listening to you say that. I wonder if I get the sense that one of the particular joys of doing Showbox is that the whole experience is a lot more intimate than the big fight weeks. You get much more time just informally around the fighters and around the fight camps. And you also get to see these kids when they're kids. When they're still, Gordon was talking about this. We had him on the podcast last week and he was saying, they're still fresh face. They still say ma'am and sir and thank you and please. Absolutely. And they don't have their entourages. I get these fighters saying, my dad told me about you. <laughs> 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 or in some cases, my grandfather told me about you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but, you know, that's right. What Gordy said is absolutely right. Um, there, there is a real innocence about them. And a lot of them, not only have they never been on television, they've never been in one of our fighter meetings, you know. Mm -hmm. 
they've never had anybody ask them questions about about themselves you know and and the variety of answers that you get is stunning you know uh, most of them because they do have that innocence this is one of the things i've always liked about fighters to begin with is that any fighter you ask them a question they look you in the eye and they honestly give you they give you a heartfelt answer more than any other athlete in any other sport you know football guys basketball guys they give you the you know the routine you know we play them one at a time you know that crap you know <laughs> fighters look you in the eye and and they give you a heartfelt honest answer that's what i love about the sport you know and, and i mean at every level even at the higher levels you know um although that's fading more you know but i think one of the things that hurt you know we all during covid we couldn't have face-to-face -face meetings with the fighters and that in my opinion really affected the show mm. you know, because i i can only speak for myself i didn't have those little tidbits that I could drop into a fight or something that I might've seen across the table, you know, and you guys, both reporters, you know, you know, you sit in a situation like that and it's not only the fighter that you're looking at, you're looking at his trainer and everybody else and how they're looking at him and what they're saying. And you get a pretty good idea if this guy really has a chance to win the fight. Many, many of those times we'll walk out of a meeting saying no chance, this guy's got no chance, ah. you know, and even though they're pumping him up and, you know, uh, that's that you know that's to me that's a, a really big part of a broadcast is is talking to the fighters i find that uh, you know beyond records and statistics and things when you when we're on the air the things i talk about i'd say probably 70 percent uh come from those fighter meetings mm -hmm. i was also thinking that the actual process of broadcasting during covid must have been very difficult too because you were separate oh, yeah. you would do a, a, a part weren't you yeah, well, like, well, we were, you know, hey, uh, one story. So we were doing fights um, up in Connecticut, you know, and during COVID. And of course, there was nobody in the audience at all, you know. So Steve and I were sitting next to her, we're do next to each other, and we're doing the fight. And guy gets, it's early in the fight, and a guy gets hit and really rocked, goes down, and he gets up, and he's really wobbly. And the referee says, come to me. And he's taking side steps. And and uh, the referee says, okay, you're okay, go on. And, and Steve and I were talking about, there's no way this guy, is, this fight should be stopped. You know, this guy cannot stand or walk, let alone, you know, continue to fight. And the referee heard us say that and stopped the fight. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now that That's... wouldn't happen if there was anybody there, you know. Well, yeah. <laughs> it lets you know you still have some influence. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe you thought, well, maybe I should have, you know. <laughs> but the, you know, it, thinking thinking back on that, those COVID fights, the other thing that I'm remembering now is that you guys had a fight the Friday of the week that every that the world shut down. That you were was it Minnesota? Maybe you were yeah, you were into that one. Good. Yeah. That so what 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 do you remember of that week of the fact that you were you were already there and <laughs> I assume what, what uh, I, your, what, your wife wasn't thrilled that uh, that, that you were I, out what there. I was, what, I was, what I tried to remember is how many people I hugged that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because you know that's the other thing about boxing. Boxing is an intimate sport in that sense. I mean, everybody hugs everybody. You know, you see somebody, hey, hey how are you? you know? Right. Right. I mean, that's that that just goes with the sport, I think, maybe more than most other sports. And truly, that is that's what I say. Oh, my God. Who did I you know, who was I really close to? Who did I? You know? And right. for, I never did get COVID you know, for the first couple of years. I've had it since. But uh, right. but yeah, no, that that definitely was in my uh, going through my mind and getting on the plane, you know, and coming back from Minnesota the next day. So. Right.
And then and then you got home and you didn't see anyone for several months again. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Got into was, your bubble. Yeah, that's right. My my wife finally was saying, go hug somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. All right. So uh, a couple of things uh, to finish off with uh, sort of looking looking forward. We know we've mostly been looking back on these all these years of, of Showbox and Showtime. But um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, first of all, how bizarre is it to you that HBO and Showtime boxing are, are, are both gone? But sort of spinning it forward, do you feel OK about the future of boxing broadcasting despite these cancellations? Well, I think it hurts. You know, I've, I kind of feel like the typhoid Mary here. I was both at HBO and Showtime, and they're both gone. Oh, wait. Well, <laughs> us too, yeah. Wow. You know, and that's right. In your podcast, you're gone. Right. You know? <laughs> so, um, I'm sad about it, you know, and I think I, I, I think it's going to wind up as a streaming service, which will make it even more of a niche sport than it already is. Mm. You know, I think one of the things that was – really good about its being on first HBO and then both and more recent, more recently on Showtime, you know, is that it gave them, it, it, it opened the doors to a new audience. You know, the people that generally watch Showtime or HBO aren't usually people who watch boxing and so, which was good for, it was good for HBO because it gave them new subscribers. It was good for Showtime because of the same reason it wasn't the, the boxing crowd wasn't the crowd that was watching uh, billions, you know? So, um, you know, I thought it was a pretty good marriage. And so I, I do think it will become, sadly, I think it will become even more of a niche sport now. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I find it sad. I really, I really do. It'll find a home for sure. It'll find a home. You know, I expect I would be shocked if it wasn't a streaming service of some sort. You know, I, uh, I really miss uh, not not only the the sport and the people in the sport, but our crew. I really do. I would, I, you know, we all, all of us, I think Gordon would say this. I say this. Everybody that I've talked to would say this, you know, are sitting around hoping against hope that we can get the band back together. You know, that whoever picks it up, you know, Amazon Prime is one that people are talking about now. Uh, if they pick it up. In fact, I wrote a note to Stephen Espinosa. I'll tell you guys, just saying, you know, I so much enjoyed working with you and uh, whatever happens, you know, I'm not looking for Morrow's job. Don't get me wrong, you know, um, but I, I want to be a part of it. You know, I'd love to be a part of it. Please include me. And if you have anything to do with this, you know, and I do feel that way. And if Gordon ever decides we'll somehow redo, you know, another form of, of showbox, because I think, the boxing industry would want it, you know, uh, and it's, and if it goes on a streaming service, I'd like that better than anything, you know, right. I, I really would. And, and frankly, I mean, I think all of us are kind of hoping, maybe it's hoping against hope, but that that happens. Yeah. So, I mean, that was what I was going to ask you as, as a young man, just starting out your career for it to be, kind of cruelly interrupted here um you'd like to just thank keep you i really calling. appreciate that <laughs> you'd like to uh yeah i mean i, I you'd I, like to keep my aarp insurance will uh, <laughs> go ahead i'm sorry but yeah you'd like to keep calling boxing as long as you can clearly i would you know yeah. I, and in my business obviously age is it's always a factor you know and people look at it and there's no question in my mind you know i can't go to somebody who doesn't know me and say, boy, here's a job I'd love to have, you know, because there's plenty of people who are, 
you know, 30 years younger and maybe every bit as qualified as I am, you know, I mean, I think I have some chops, you know, but, um, but for me to get hired, it would have to be from somebody who knows me, you know, because immediately you look at somebody who's my age and you say, well, they got to be dotty, you know, they can't be the same person. I'm not saying I am the same person as I was, you know, but I could still string a sentence or two together, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe get a chuckle out of somebody. And I certainly know what I'm looking at in a boxing ring. You know, I always said boxing is the easiest sport in America to call. If you know your left and your right, you should be able to call boxing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the, any of those young guys who they may be comparing to you, Barry, none of them called Balboa versus Drago. They that is true. Them. That that yeah, That is true. And it's interesting, you know, after all these years of, of doing these things and doing a bunch of different things, you know, because for a long time I was a tennis guy, you know, I, I did Wimbledon for 14 years and French Open for eight years. And and uh, so people thought of me as a tennis guy. There was a time when people, th- people thought of me as a college hoops guy, you know, and I still do college hoops. But, you know, so you go through all those things. And yet more than anything else, people will ask me about that Rocky film. You know, it's a question I get asked more than any more than anything else of anything I've done, any event that I've done, all the fights, you know, I've done, you know, some pretty big moments in other sports and nobody ever asked about them. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, you played a, war- a role in ending the cold war. So it's, it's hard yeah, to top exactly, that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, if I can do that in boxing. You know? <laughs> uh, Barry, it's been a delight as always. Um, I also hope that the band all gets back together and that we're also a part of it. And uh, we get to do this again, um, hopefully in the not too distant future, because it's always been a joy having you having you on. It's been fun. You and I co-hosting when Eric's been gallivanting off somewhere. Right. And, that, um, no, you know, yeah, uh, look, look forward and, to doing it again, buddy. And frankly, uh, you know, there, I'm not a big podcast guy. There's not a lot of podcasts that I really sit religiously and listen to. And not only being on yours, but but listening to yours. You know, I mean, you guys, A, really know what you're talking about, and uh, and B, you can have fun with it. And that, to me, that's what the business is all about. Indeed. Well, thanks very much. And uh, we've really appreciated it. And yeah, let's, uh, let's uh, meet up in Sloan, Iowa. I hear they we'll have a good buffet. see you on the other side. That's, I know a great <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> there you go. See you at the subway. Ah, Barry is just the best. Uh, yeah. Impossible guy not to like. I- I'm not surprised to learn he and Steve became pretty much best friends. That's what happens when you put together two people about who yeah. no decent person could possibly have a bad word to say. Yeah, that is one of the great things about when we've had Showtime folks on. It's we've universally our response has been, damn, that's a it's a great person. Whether it's Brian Custer or Buddy mm-hmm. Camp, Barry or Steve or al i mean any of these guys raul abner they're all great guys gordon of course right so yeah let's uh let's let's hope we all wind up somewhere else even if it's the rest home for boxing podcasters (laughs) is there such a thing sure (laughs) if there is yeah let us in uh all right uh let's talk about a couple of fights last weekend and we'll take them in the order they happened starting with a pretty big upset in belfast uh lightly regarded jordan gill who was coming off a loss to kiko martinez stunned hometown hero michael conlon knocking him down in round two and eventually prompting referee howard foster's intervention in the seventh this was conlon's second straight stoppage loss and his third in his last five fights kieran is this the end of the road for Conlon? Uh, Conlon objected to the stoppage. Did you have an opinion on it? 
And anything else to add about the fight or about Gill's performance? I did think the stoppage looked a little premature, to be honest. But mm-hmm. I also suspect that Howard Foster was seeing the way that Conlon was starting to respond to Gill's punches. Um, yeah. And of course, he would have gone in knowing that uh, that Conlon was knocked out in his last fight and was knocked out just a few fights ago. Um, it's interesting, really. On one level, you wonder if we would really care all that much about Michael Conlon if he hadn't been all sweary at the Olympics. Right. Um, he does have talent. He clearly has talent. And he's clearly improved in many respects. I remember being at his pro debut at the theater at MSG, and he wasn't very good. His basic technique was quite poor for an Olympian. But I think he's gotten a lot better. Um, until he was stopped, I remember thinking during the Lee Wood fight how much he'd improved. The problems that he has, uh, that he stands in the pocket a bit too long, leaving himself open. As he tires, his head movement diminishes. That's a big issue for him. So he's standing in front of opponents and not moving his head. And as we said after that last loss, fundamentally, he just doesn't appear to have the resilience that you need to be to be a really top-flight professional boxer. I don't know whether he never had it or whether it's just been chipped out of him um, over the years. But once your chin's been cracked, and once it starts getting cracked multiple times it isn't going to get any better. So to answer your question, is this it for Condon? Probably. I mean, it depends what he wants to achieve. But as I understand it, he's basically been boxing since he was just out of diapers. He's taken a lot of punches as an amateur, as a pro. Your punch resistance isn't great. You're going to end up in all kinds of trouble late in life if you go on too long. I guess it depends what he wants to do. He could still earn a living as a professional boxer. There are many, many, many pro boxers who are significantly less talented and capable than him. But he did, doesn't appear to have what it takes to win any kind of significant title. So, you know, what, what's going to be the point of him continuing to do it? Uh, uh, the Lee Wood loss looks better as time has gone on, but none of the people who've knocked him out are going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. It's not like he's putting up a brave fight and falling at the last against Javante Davis. Plus, surprisingly, perhaps, he is 32. So, I don't know, how much time does he have to fix the holes? Are they holes that are fixable? Um, I'm not sure. I think the smart move here for Michael Conlon, hopefully he's made a bit of money, is to, is to you know get out of the game, I think, probably, and and, and see what else uh, is there for him. He's 32. He's getting a bit old for a 130-pound boxer, but he's very young for a human being. So he's got plenty right. of other things to do in his life, I think. Yeah. Uh, in the highest profile fight of the weekend, Saturday night in Houston, at a catch weight of 143 pounds, Ryan Garcia rebounded from his loss to Javante Davis by stopping Oscar Duarte in round eight. Uh, Duarte applied nonstop pressure, and Garcia certainly appeared uncomfortable in spots, but nonetheless built a lead on all the cards by counterpunching and landing hard hooks and body shots. He wobbled Duarte late in the eighth. Series of follow-up punches put him down, and Duarte was rising as ref James Green was between nine and ten. Green determined that Duarte didn't beat the count, ending the fight at 251 of the round. Eric, how did Garcia look to you at this career highway and in his first fight with our friend Derek James in the corner? So I thought going in that Duarte would be the perfect style to look good against. Instead, he was kind of a pain in the ass style that, that was tough <laughs> to look great against. I guess you could look good, but looking great against him was was challenging. But he still ultimately was overmatched and, and Garcia was able to shine in the end and get the KO. So it was actually better for Garcia in all regards. You know, he got some real work in and I think he elevated himself a bit by 
you know, not quite having it all his way, but then getting the job done anyway. So all in all, I thought he looked good, but not great. Uh, Looked like he was working out some kinks, uh, especially with some defensive vulnerabilities when he was turning to the side and uh, against a bigger puncher. I could see him paying a price for for the defense there. But um, I was impressed with his patience, his willingness to just kind of plug away and stick to the the counter punching approach and and to get on his toes at times. He fought the right safe smart game plan without making it boring. Um but you know like this is who Garcia is. Uh who I've always kind of thought he was which is uh, a legit talent but not quite a top top tier talent. It's it's his marketability that got him into that mix uh where as was evidenced against Javante He's almost certain to come up short against those guys, but he has the talent to certainly beat anyone on the Duarte level. And he's turned into a smart, calm, seasoned fighter. And um, Derek James may just be an excellent fit for him. You know, it's kind of too soon to say, but so far, so good. And um, yeah, Garcia ended up proving a little more to me in this fight than I anticipated he would have to. Uh, it still was totally mispriced by the sports books, though. This was easy money at minus 400. Um, but yeah, good, good, but not great win. Um, and um, just a quick last note, let this be a lesson to all fighters out there. If you have the wherewithal to get up between the count of eight and nine, yeah, do so. <laughs> Don't wait till after nine. Um, I mean, Duarte... He may have been all the way up without the ref saying 10, but you know, you're, you're running that risk. Uh, You want to be all the way up as he says, nine, I would say that the extra half second of recovery time that you're trying to buy yourself before the fight resumes, it it just ain't worth the risk. I'm not saying this is what was the case with Oscar Duarte, but quite often when you see fighters rise at nine and a half, it's right. They want to be able to protest that they were stopped too soon. Right without actually wanting to get back into the action. It's kind of, it's a, oh man, if I just had the other half second, I could have gotten back in there kind of a thing. It's one of the things that boxers have to tell themselves sometimes. And I I don't know. His equilibrium was clearly off completely. Mm. And maybe he just couldn't get his legs back under him properly in time. But yeah, no, that was a, that was a fine stoppage. That's, that's what happens. Yeah. And you know what? My opinions on this are basically the same as yours. It's interesting. I, I made, two seemingly contradictory notes during the fight. One was, to echo what you were saying, God, Duarte must be a pain in the ass to fight. <laughs> yeah. And secondly, boy, Duarte's got the perfect style for Ryan Garcia to look good. <laughs> and, 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 you know, what I mean is like that crowding, hustling style, like just getting in close and looking to whip in hooks and crosses. It, it requires a lot of effort to keep somebody like that off you and keep mm-hmm. him at bay. But if you have range and reach and hand speed, um, and can get good leverage and angles on your punches, it's a kind of style that can make you look pretty good. Um, you're the kind of person who can do well against somebody like that. And that that is indeed Brian Garcia. Um, uh, I did wonder, like yourself, I think, in rounds five and six, whether Garcia was about to blow it all. I wasn't sure what was going on with him there, especially right. once Duarte and his team realized he could keep firing left hooks at him. But he went back to his corner, Ryan. He listened to Derek James. Um, and even if he was a bit stinky, he, in round seven, he, he came out and did what he needed to do. Um, there were times where I thought maybe he was thinking a little bit too much in there, Ryan Garcia, but that's to be expected. It's Mm. his first fight back after being knocked out. Right. Uh, his first fight with a new trainer. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to happen sometimes. Some things just aren't going to flow yet. But I also had 
the same feeling as you that Derek might be perfect for him. Um, and uh, yeah, just just really nice, calm advice in there. I increasingly get the feeling, though, when I look at Ryan Garcia, I think of Amir Khan. I don't know about you, but very talented, real hand speed, good looking guy, charismatic guy, probably just that little bit too vulnerable in the ring mm. to be truly great. Right. But um, potentially very, very good. And maybe, you know, and you kind of touched on this, maybe as he matures, he's the kind of guy who's going to get a bit better because he's got the talent and maybe he just needs to get their head together as well and figure out what he's doing and get a bit more, you know, focused on the boxing and away from Ryan Garcia Instagram star. So maybe we haven't seen the best of him yet. Yeah, that's possible. And I think maybe he's one of those fighters who's going to have to figure out exactly how to toe the line where he's boxing safe and not, you know, not risking turning himself into another Amir Khan who, who yeah. gets knocked out every time he steps up that sort of value the defense and, and the boxing and the hand speed and all that stuff properly without letting himself turn into just like a boring stink it out boxer that he's going to have to, yeah. if he can find that perfect midpoint on, on that line. Yeah. He could have a, a nice long career right up, near the top i'm not sure that i can ever see him like cracking pound for pound lists and beating those elite type of guys but um but yeah one thing's for sure he's gonna he's, he's still there's a lot of money left to be made for ryan garcia before yes that. yes all right with ryan garcia having transitioned from 135 to 140 or in this case 143 pounds um his fight segues nicely into our news main event a pair of topics involving Starfighters at 135 and 140. Uh, Devin Haney, the lineal champ at lightweight, has indicated he's vacating all of his belts in that division, as we assumed he would, as he prepares for his fight this weekend, which we'll be previewing shortly against Regis Progray at 140. That leaves open the question of who's the man to beat at lightweight. And one fight is reportedly in the works that'll help point toward that answer. It's Vasily Lomachenko, who lost controversially to Haney in May, versus George Cambosos, who briefly held the lineal championship, upsetting Teofimo Lopez and then losing the title to Haney. That's in the works for April in Cambosos' native Australia. Uh, Kieran, your thoughts on Loma Cambosos or the lightweight division overall with Devin Haney officially out of the conversation? Look, even though he's much closer to the end of the road than the beginning of it, uh, Lomachenko is still good enough that, you know, as you mentioned, he could give Haney by far the toughest fight of his career and probably should have gotten the decision he might not be able to dominate opponents the way he could at his peak but he should have far far too much for Cambosis, who yeah. honestly has made a pretty good career out of being in the ring with the half-dead Teofimo Lopez um I I don't know if Lomachenko is going to stick around for very much longer honestly um but if he does then with Haney's departure and assuming he beats Cambosis, he'll be part of this kind of holy trinity atop the division that uh, it feels like, at least for now, is ahead of everyone else. The other two being Javante Davis and Shakur Stevenson. And even um, though Stevenson needs a strong rebound performance after that disappointing outing against Edwin De Los Santos, I think he'll produce it, um, whoever he faces next. We don't know who Davis is likely to face next. Uh, obviously, his career in the back half of last year was interrupted by his legal issues. But fights between any two of those three, if they can be made, could be immense. Um, still think probably Tank is the class of that division right now, but um, Shakur 
assuming he gets himself back on track, could also have a very, very difficult style matchup for him. But in the meantime, I fully expect Lomachenko to, to outpoint Cambosis comprehensively. Um, behind those guys, a couple of pretty damn good can- contenders. We've got William Zapeda, we've got Frank Martin. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's still the likes of Isak Cruz, Michelle Rivera, Jermaine Ortiz. It's not a super packed division, but I, it looks like it's in pretty good shape. We've got three veterans who would would be good to see face off each other. We've got a couple of really quite promising youngsters just behind. Um, yeah, it's not in a bad bad shape, the lightweight division. Um, we have a few random items for our news undercard. Uh, the WBA has announced it is following the WBC's lead and adding a 224-pound weight class, calling it Super Cruiserweight, which is not the worst name that has been created for that kind of division so there's that um 130 pound belt holder ushaki foster has his next fight date his first defense under the top rank banner and that'll be february 16th at the theater at madison square garden with espn televising uh, speaking of 130 pounders manuel navaretti had what he termed quote minor surgery on his left hand for what he described as quote an old injury that worsened in my last fight uh golden boy announced the super middleweight fight for January 27th at the Footprint Center in Phoenix, Arizona. Jaime Munguia against John Ryder with DeZone carrying it. And lastly, sad news. Lennox Lewis's mother, uh, Violet Blake, died Thursday at age 85. As those who covered Lennox's career know, she was a fixture at his fights and press conferences over the years. Lennox wrote on social media, quote, it's an indescribable type of hurt that has me reeling. It also has me comforted to know she is now in a better place with no more suffering. I, I never met Violet myself, but I know Lennox, as do you. I like Lennox very, very much, uh, mm. as do you. And I don't think you get to be such a nice, chill person without the guidance of a, of a good mother. Um, Eric, your comments on any of this news? Yeah, uh, start with uh, condolences, of course, to Lennox. Uh, his mum always seemed lovely. Uh, I, I'm not sure I've ever used the word mum in my life, but it, it feels right <laughs> in this case. Um, I, I also never met her, but... Um, but still, this one does make me sad for whatever reason. Um, not much else to say about it, really. Just, again, condolences to Lennox and his whole family. Uh, nothing really to say about Oshaki Foster until we find out the opponent. Navarrete, this partially explains his struggle last time out against Sal, But as far as I know, he didn't mention the hand after the fight. He hasn't tried to use it as an excuse. So... Uh, good for him, if I'm correct about that, if he hasn't been uh, trying to make an excuse of it. Um, it. Yeah. Uh, Mungia Ryder, that's solid. Uh, I, I actually wouldn't be shocked if Ryder hangs that first loss on Mungia. I'll, uh, I'll be curious to see the odds there. If he's a big enough underdog, I may be interested. Um, I do think, however, that if Mungia wins in style, really looks awesome. You know, this fight is scheduled for a little more than three months before Cinco de Mayo. That's yeah. enough time. He could well be in the Canelo sweepstakes and get the shot before David Benavidez, unfortunately, if he looks spectacular against Ryder. As for this additional weight class, you know what these alphabet groups should do? <laughs> Add a weight class, but don't charge any sanctioning fees. Just, you know, maybe charge the cost of the belt, a few hundred bucks, whatever the materials cost. But introduce a new title with no sanctioning fees and prove that you're doing it for the right reasons and not just to make extra money. Uh, Of course, they never do that. Their entire goal is to find ways to make extra money with zero regard for the cheapening of the sport, Um, which is why the WBA for so long had two or three belt holders in every weight class. And uh, now that there's been enough vocal opposition to get them to reduce that absurd count of belt holders, they've decided, well, then let's add a weight class. Despite, watching another sanctioning body do it 
and seeing that zero world-class fighters want to have anything to do with it. Um, any actual championship level boxer between about 210 and 225 pounds is fighting at heavyweight because that's where the money is. That's where the prestige is. The only people fighting for 224 pound titles are no disrespect meant by this, but guys who are not actual heavyweight contenders at all guys who are well outside the top 30 or 40 heavyweights who can't compete with the actual heavyweight contenders. So for them, this consolation belt may appeal. Um, that's all it is, a consolation belt in a consolation weight class. They should call it consolation weight. Uh, it's uh, certainly <laughs> a hell of a lot better than bridger weight uh, and probably better than cru super cruiser weight, too. Um, but, yeah, it, it's a bad idea. The WBC introduced it and the needle has not moved one bit. And now the WBA is trying it anyway. And soon the others will, too. And eventually yeah. the members of the media who have no appreciation for boxing history will start saying there are 18 weight classes, just like they eventually yeah. caved and started recognizing four alphabet groups instead of three. And um, in the end, always leads to the same place. Boxing fans lose. To 18. Is that really what we're up to now? If, if, if we count this one, in my mind, it's still seven. I'm going with 17 for now, but eventually wow. we'll all cave and recognize 18. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yep. All right, time now for the fight game. Um, I'll start with a, a clue zero uh, before before even we get to clue one. Clue zero. It's not a super cruiserweight or bridgerweight fight. <laughs> there's, your, there's your clue zero. Um, but now let's see if you can get it on clue one for the second time in a row. I'd be very impressed if you did. I'm, I'm not impossible to get in one, but as always, okay. rather unlikely. Uh, are you ready? Uh, as ready as ever. Okay. Clue one. You wouldn't necessarily think it would qualify as a massive upset if a 33-0 fighter beats a 38-0 fighter, but in this case, it was. The 38-0 fighter was as much as a 7-to-1 favorite going in. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it is one of the... I feel like I should know this. I certainly would not say you should know it, but you could know it. If the, hmm. I did give you the exact records and and the odds and you know which fighter won uh, which record fighter won right um i'm yeah i i will i i'm going i think that it's relatively recent um mostly because like by in the 40s and 50s you were 38 and 0 when you were 18 and you'd been in the business for like a year right so so i'm gonna say it's probably within the last 30 years probably this century but i don't know what it is okay all right we'll move on to clue two here we go this bout in new york city went the 12 round distance with scores of 115 110 117 108 and 118 108 do you want to hit me with those scores again Yes, uh, and, and I'll repeat the other two key details. New York City, 12-round distance. Uh, so the scores, 115-110, 117-108, Okay, so there were a couple of knockdowns or some point deductions or something in there, too. That is uh, that is what I was uh, figuring you would correctly infer from that. Those were not those are not those are not complete <laughs> <Genius>. scores, <laughs> right? No, but you know, some people may not stop and think carefully about what those scores mean, and you have done that. So it's in New York City. So there are a couple of knockdowns. Oh, I'm 
fucking be annoyed, aren't I? Was <laughs> I there? I don't believe so. Okay. But that's clearly within an era where that's possible. Mm -hmm. The fact that, yeah, the fact that I had to pause for a second. Uh, I'll just go ahead and confirm that your initial assumptions about last 30 years. Uh, correct. Uh, I, I, will, I will give you a bonus half a clue that this is within the last 30 years. Within the last 30 years. Where I'm trying to think. Where, where was um, Jones and Tony? That wasn't in New York, was it? I think that was Las Vegas. That is that is not the fight in question. So here. That's not the fight. All right. But you're, um, you know what? Those scores were were in this ballpark. I don't I don't think anyone had it as close as one fifteen, one ten. No, but seventeen oh eight, eighteen oh eight. It was in that range. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm gonna have to pass again. Okay. All right. I I was not expecting you to get it in the first two. I think the third is the clue that. You've got a shot to get it here, perhaps. Okay. <laughs> In the co-feature bout televised by HBO, Arturo Gatti got back on track with a fourth-round knockout of Tehran Millet. Okay, so back on track. So this was after he'd had his back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back losses, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so this is definitely, like, late 90s. This is... Not early two thousands, is it? I will correct you because oh, it uh, is it, early two thousands. So it, it, oh, okay. it was back on track, not just after the three losses, but he, the his win over Millet was his, I think, his first fight back after he got bludgeoned by Oscar, and people started thinking that. Ah, uh, okay. Just a Madison Square Garden. Still not getting it. Okay. So it's so at least I've gotten the kind of time right. Uh, know roughly what year and you know what and you i will just i'll throw in another free half a clue here you said okay. madison square garden under your breath there yes but not the big room so i'm telling uh, I'm, I'm telling you the venue okay i'm not sure that that helps it may not but still and i'll also yeah. mention that that yeah clearly you were not there or you probably would have thought of but by now but i was there for what it's yeah, this was not that this not that that helps you <laughs> okay so i think I, I'm vaguely, even though I don't know exactly the fight, I'm vaguely recalling when this fight was, and it was before I just before I started to be ringside. Anyway, I think right. So, yeah. very early this century, I think. Correct. Um, Correct. No, gonna have to get a clue four. Okay. Well, clue four is the one where I, I do think you'll get it. Setting setting high expectations here, making you feel like a <laughs> dummy if you don't. Uh, clue four. Part of the reason this was considered such a huge upset was that the loser topped many pound-for-pound -pound lists at the time, but perhaps we should have seen it coming as this result echoed what happened when they fought as amateurs. Was this um, uh, Vernon Forrest? Continue, and yes. Shane? Yes, indeed. This was the first of the two fights between Vernon Forrest and Shane Mosley in the small in, room. Just in the small room. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Even though Mosley was riding high, he had so he had beaten Oscar. That pushed him to the top of some pound for pound lists, and then he had three defenses, all by knockout over Antonio Diaz, Shannon Taylor. Was that his name? Shannon Taylor. Oh, Shannon Taylor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Adrian Stone. So he like That's had right. taken on a few straight 
not that threatening guys and hadn't quite broken through to the next superstar level. Ah. Um, and so, yeah, this, this fight with Forrest, for which he was a big favorite, um, was, uh, was headlined in the small room at the Garden. Well, I'll be. Wow, yeah. I wouldn't have expected that, actually. You'd have even thought you were just having Arturo on the card would have been enough to bump it up to the big room. But there you go. Huh, yeah. I did, not, I did not know that. And and Arturo was really at like a low point of public gotcha. interest. This was, but then he came out and and dominated Tehran Millet in better than anyone anticipated him doing. May have been his first fight with Buddy McGirt, and they looked great together and all that. And I, I think his very next fight was the first Mickey Ward fight. But then, gotcha. you know, but coming into this, Gaddy was like, "Yeah, we'll throw him a bone and put him in the co-feature, even though nobody's gotcha. talking about Arturo Gaddy right now." Um, yeah. All right. Do you want to hear Clue 5? Because I'm very proud yes. of Clue 5. Okay. All right. <laughs> if a welterweight champ falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Yes. Yes, it does. And it says, oh, sugar, as it hits the canvas. <laughs> very good. Thank you. Very nice. I, would, I would certainly have got it from that. I would hope so. <laughs> you know what occurs to me? So what was the date for that? So this was January 26, 2002. Yeah. You know what? I don't think I've ever actually seen that fight. And the reason why was at the time I was either in Antarctica or in Australia, having been in Antarctica, my last Mm. trip to the Antarctic. And I remember reading about it. Like, I think I was, uh, yeah, I must have been ashore and I read about it. And I don't think, and, you know, this was 2002, which is a little bit pre-YouTube and all of that. So. I don't think it's one of those I've ever caught up on. Huh. From what I understood of the fight, fifteen ten sounds a little close. Was that a little close, or was that about yeah, right? Yeah, I can't remember how I scored it, but that does seem like maybe a, a judge that was giving Shane a couple more rounds than than they should have. That the, probably the seventeen one hundred eight was was more like it. That what really what I really remember from this fight is it um, the. First of all, I had Shane pound for pound number one. I thought clearly this was the best fighter in the world right now with Roy maybe starting to show some signs of slowing down with with, with Trinidad uh, having just lost to Hopkins. I thought it was clear that Shane Mosley was number one pound for pound. I thought he was close to unbeatable. And when he got hit with an uppercut in the second round and then hit the canvas, that place like went silent. It was just like, oh, yeah. uh, just like the whatever that like hint of a sound of a collective gasp but otherwise you know it just was like oh my god did i just see what i think i saw and then uh shane was really hurt and was just like holding on for dear life for a round or two and got through it and never really got back into the fight you know probably probably picked up a round or two along the way and may have won the opening round uh before before he got hurt in the second but so yeah if if memory serves probably that 1708 score is about right yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, there you go. There, that was a good one. I like that one. I haven't thought about that fight in a long time. Yeah. But once he said like pound for pound number one or thereabouts, I'm going through it in my head, and I was like, right. Yeah, well, it wasn't Roy. Roy had already right. lost. Right. Bernard had already. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Well, there you go. Good time. Yeah, yeah. I figured. I figured the amateur detail would be. But again, if it's a fight you never saw for that you'd like randomly missed for whatever reason and thus don't mm. think about as much as someone who saw it. You know, bit of, it turns out I hit a bit of a blind spot for you there. But still, that sort of narrative of uh, that, that that was kind yeah. of how they sold the fight in the first place. What right. looked like a basically an, an easy fight for the great Shane Mosley. But, well, you know, this guy did beat him in the amateurs. And it uh, yeah, turns out indeed. turns out something about the styles really favored Vernon Forrest. All right. 
Okay, let's look ahead to next weekend's fight. There are two cards of note. The biggest fight is atop of the zone pay-per-view on Saturday, live from Barry Tompkins, hometown of San Francisco. Nothing much to get excited about on the undercard, uh, but the main event is a big showdown at 140 pounds that we mentioned earlier in the podcast. Regis Progre defending his alphabet belt against lightweight champ Devin Haney. Progre is 29-1 and with 24 KOs, and he has just that one close loss to Josh Taylor in 2019. Haney, of course, is unbeaten at 30-0 and with 15 KOs. Eric, you got a lean on this one or a thought on the betting odds or anything else you want to say about this? You know, the, the odds are maybe a teeny bit wider than I would have expected. Um, and I wonder if they aren't overblowing Progray's lousy performance last time out against Danielito Zoria. Um, that was a really drab showing, but he did win um, fairly clearly, I thought, even though it was a split decision. And in his previous fight, looked as great as ever against Chon Zapata. So I, I just wouldn't overreact to one flat performance. But the odds, um, best price I'm seeing on Haney is minus 350. And on Progray, you can get up to plus 320. I think Progray's worth a shot at that price. Um, I favor Haney, but he's vulnerable. He got rocked by Jorge Linares a couple of years ago. He was lucky to get the win against Loma, I thought, and you thought. Uh, he's a damn good fighter, but you know, no way I'd bet him at minus 350. I think this is like a 60-40, 65-35 mm-hmm. kind of fight. Um and actually, the bet I may consider is I'm seeing the draw as high as plus 1,800. Um, yeah. I, this, this fight could certainly end in a draw. I, I, I'd also, I'd sooner bet the fight to go the distance at minus 380 than Haney to win at minus 350. I think that, that minus 380 price is fair. It's very likely a distance fight. But, but that's why I like the draw. I'm confident that it goes the distance, and I think it's likely to be close. It's a really interesting meeting of, of comparable skills. Uh, Rougarou is a southpaw, uh, certainly the more unorthodox of the two. Um, he's the better fighter on the inside. I'd look for Haney to try to box long and mostly stay outside. Uh, the internet tells me his reach is indeed four inches longer. So I would expect to see him pump a lot of jabs and, and long straight rights while Progray will be looking to counter or faint and get inside. But, you know, th- these are two seriously skillful guys. I would expect a close decision in Haney's favor, but I surely won't be betting on him. Um, and uh, and by the way, I got to say a quick word about DAZN putting this on pay-per-view after uh, originally, of course, DAZN's stated mission was to kill pay-per-view. Um, instead, you now pay a big annual fee for DAZN, plus they're asking for another 60 bucks for this for subscribers. And then they didn't put anything terribly enticing on the undercard. It's a big ask on, I'm just not sure either Haney or Progray has a large enough fan base. We'll, we'll see, but boy, this really would have been a nice, regular old standard subscription to zone main event. And I, I realize there's some hypocrisy in me saying that we hyped a lot of Showtime pay-per-views the last five years, and and some of them may have been better suited to Showtime Championship Boxing, but I don't know. I'm, I'm just not confident this fight sells well, but I do very much like the matchup. Um, The other notable televised card on Saturday is on ESPN, headlined by a featherweight alphabet defense for Robisi Ramirez, looking to extend his 13-fight win streak since losing his pro debut. He takes on Rafael Espinoza of Mexico, who is 21-0 with 18 KOs, but hasn't faced anyone you've heard of. On the undercard, Xander Zayas will be in action against Jorge Fortea, and Richard Torres Jr. will maybe, possibly, get some rounds in against Curtis Harper. Uh, Anything interest you here, Kieran? 
Yeah, I, I'm interested in all the young A-side fighters you mentioned. I'm, I'm particularly high on Zayas, who sneaked into my top five fighters under 25 list a few weeks right. ago. But um, I am keen to see if Torres, as you hinted, is going to get an opponent who can give him some rounds. It's interesting. I'm not quite sure what's happening there with Torres. Look, Bruce Tramper and Brad Goodman, who are top-ranked matchmakers, know what they're doing. They are the cream of the crop. So I, I kind of wonder, part of me is starting to think, are they matching him so incredibly soft because they know something that we don't? But then again, I thought, you know, he is still only 24, Torres. Um, right. He is only 7-0. and Heavyweights tend to peak later. So, you know what? Maybe they know exactly what they're doing. And maybe mm. they're just biding their time and, and cranking up a bit. It just seems, perhaps, that it's taking longer for him to meet tough opposition because nowadays it takes fighters two years to get to 7-0. and as opposed to six months and and so we think well when is it ever going to happen so i don't know maybe maybe they're really happy with him and they're, they're happy to to moving him along bit by bit uh it seems a little strange that he hasn't fought anybody with much of a pulse yet but we'll see uh, uh trampler and goodman between them have forgotten more about matchmaking in the last 30 <laughs> seconds than i know so um you know we'll, we'll see well we assume they they know what they're doing there yeah all right, let's finish, shall we, with this week's top five challenge. As you mentioned to Mr. Tompkins, you challenged me last week to come up with a list of the top five all-time fights on Showtime. I actually found the top three relatively easy, although I've gone back and forth over the placement of two and three. Okay. Um, but the rest were tricky for me because there have been quite a few fights that could lay claim to one of those spots. Um, I'm going to guess that my top three you have, if not necessarily in the same order or in the top three spots. Um, but I think that we, I wouldn't be surprised if we have quite a bit of variation between us in four and five. But okay. um, in the event, at number five, I decided not to go for some of the more obvious examples, but I instead picked one that many may have forgotten. It wasn't even a main event. It was kind of buried on a, I think a five fight five title fight pay-per-view hmm. um december 10th 1994 all of these by the way it turns out were fights of the year by according to the ring or the boxing writers or both uh this was december 10th 1994 it was the 1994 fight of the year it was in monterey mexico jorge castro ko9 john david jackson um jackson entered the contest undefeated at 32 and 0 castro was 95 4 and 2 um, Jackson had the hand speed, the boxing skills, the footwork. Castro was just a mean bastard and, and just strong as a bull. Uh, the first five rounds saw some real tough toe-to-toe -to -toe action. It was not dissimilar. If, if, if Duarte had had more to give on Saturday night, the way Duarte Garcia sort of unfolded at times was a little like uh, Castro uh, uh, Jackson. The difference was that it was the big, strong ox who ultimately won. Um, in the sixth round, Castro got a terrible terrible swelling uh, uh he'd gotten a, excuse me he'd gotten a terrible swelling on his left eye and then in the sixth round it burst and blood is flying everywhere he's getting blood in his eye he can't see properly at this point jackson is really taking it over um and uh jackson's just absolutely tattooing castro at the beginning of the ninth hurts him badly sends him into the ropes referee stanley christadulu ready to step in castro launches a left hook out of nowhere bam down goes jackson Somehow makes it to his feet a couple more times, but he's basically out. And uh, Chris Dulu stops it in the ninth fight of the year, 1994. 
Jorge Castro K09 John David Taxon. Yeah, you can count me among those who uh, forgot all about this one. Uh, didn't even didn't even cross my mind as I was uh, putting uh, options together. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, great fight, insane action. Um, we, you know, you know, we'll we'll get around to the fact that number one uh, is is fairly obvious here. And then I actually, I felt like my number two, I was felt very good about. And then from there, I had like six more that I considered for the final three spots. And I feel like they're all kind of interchangeable almost. Mm -hmm. And so this is one that I forgot that I would say I'm fine not having it in my top five, but it at least would belong among that group of fights I should have been considering. And full disclosure, I did phone a friend again. Right. Um, And this wasn't on my list initially either. So you cheated. Uh, Okay. Uh, you specifically gave me <laughs> you're right, to go ahead you're right, to phone a friend. Right. <laughs> and um, I don't, and my top five and Steve Farhurst, who was the friend I called, mm-hmm. um, were very similar. But he mentioned this one as a, I, I can't remember if he had it in his top five or just one that he would put around there. And I right. re- realized, oh my God, I've forgotten all about that fight. Yeah. Went and rewatched it and thought, yeah, no, this deserves to be on there. So I stuck okay. it on there. All right. Number four is a fight from the very early weeks of Showtime Boxing. June 23rd, 1986, Caesars Palace, Las Vegas, Steve Cruz, uh, winning uh, over 15 rounds against Barry McGuigan, also the fight of the year. Round 15 was round of the year. Um, McGuigan was a huge star in the UK. This is his real coming out party in the States, part of a Showtime pay-per-view card that also featured Thomas Hearns and Roberto Duran in separate bouts. Um, McGuigan started well, but Cruz was not a well-known opponent at all. Far stronger than expected. And McGuigan soon began to really struggle with the crippling Las Vegas summer heat. The sun was still beating down during the fight. The fight was in the daytime. Imagine being from Northern Ireland and fighting in Las Vegas in June in the daytime outside. Um, In round eight, Cruz's right hands began to take a toll. McGuigan dropped to one knee, um, got back at it. The fight was well and truly on now. Um, McGuigan did look in danger of losing his featherweight crown in an upset. He dug deep, dominated rounds 13 and 14 to leave him two points clear on two cards going into the final round, despite the fact that he lost the point in the 12th for a low blow. But those 13th and 14th rounds took everything out of him. He had nothing left as Cruz rallied, dropped him twice in the final round, and eked out a decision by scores of 142-141, 143-142, and 143-139. Had McGuigan managed to be knocked down one time fewer or not had that point deduction, he would have escaped with a draw. But in the event, this was the fight of the year and surely the upset of the year. Well, damn it. I really blew it by not phoning a friend myself because I, I, I it's not so much that I forgot about this one. I guess maybe I I guess I forgot that this was a Showtime fight. I wasn't I did I not think of this one. Um, so uh, I had said that I basically had like eight contenders for my five spots. Let, add Castro Jackson Make to the list nine. and add Cruz Mc, McGuigan. So now we're up to 10 fights that I would have considered <laughs> uh, reasonable for the top five. All right. My number three could very easily be number two. If you have it at number two, I won't fight you over it. Um, You could pick almost any of the first three fights these two men engaged in. Mm. I'd like to pull a Mulvaney special and make put the entire trilogy here. But if I'm forced to pick one, I will pick the third. March 1st, 2008, at the then Home Depot Center, the third meeting between Israel Vasquez and Rafael Marquez, which ended with Vasquez taking a split decision win once again. This was fight of the year. Once again, it included the round of the year, the fourth in which Marquez dropped Vasquez. Vasquez got off the deck to rattle Marquez several times. Back and forth they went. 
Marquez, like McWigan, losing a point for low blows. And then in the waning seconds of the fight, Vasquez scoring an official knockdown when the referee had judged the ropes to be holding Marquez up. That was enough to secure Vasquez the split decision victory by scores of 111, 114, 114-111, 113-112 to go 2-1 up in the series. Yeah, this is my number two. Uh, and uh, and I felt pretty good about it in, in that spot. A little separation in my mind between this and my number three, which I guess we'll find out momentarily whether my number three is your number two. Um, but yeah, this was certainly the best of the, of the fights between Vasquez and Marquez. And um, one of the rare fights, I guess, in boxing history where all the officials did their jobs perfectly to maximize <laughs> the, the drama and get it correct that you, the, my sense going into the 12th round was that Vasquez would need to win the round to get a draw and would need a knockdown to actually win the fight. He got that knockdown. It was a correct call by, I believe Pat Russell was the referee. If memory serves, he correctly called that the ropes held him up. It was in the waning moments. It doesn't get any more dramatic than that. Nailed the call uh, of the knockdown. And then the judges, actually had it right that that knockdown made the difference and so maximum drama and just just a spectacular fight yeah indeed um number two is my is my top two affected by the fact that i was ringside for both of them yeah probably at least in this case um my number two is anthony joshua ko11 vladimir klitschko april 29th 2017 in front of ninety thousand fans at wembley stadium still the greatest live experience i've ever had and guess what it was fight of the year. Um, after a cautious opening four rounds, Joshua scored a knockdown in round five. But Klitschko was the one who ended the round more strongly after stunning Joshua. It was Klitschko who scored a knockdown in the sixth. Uh, alas for him, the Ukrainian didn't press his advantage. It was Joshua who came back to life first, knocking down Klitschko twice in the 11th and stopping him against the ropes. Tremendous atmosphere. Cracking fight. Yeah, so interestingly, because perhaps because I was not there and uh, perhaps because I was only giving it half credit as a Showtime fight since it was a, <laughs> but it was live on Showtime. So I did. Yep. I did count it in this, but I had it among my just outside the top five sure. group, uh, um, which means that the fight that I have at three, as well as the fights I have at four and five, which I'll, I'll get to all of them when you're done, uh, that my three, four and five are not in your top five and you're two, four, and five are, are, are not in, in mine, although part of that was me not thinking of a couple of them. But anyway, yeah, I think that uh, this one is certainly worthy of consideration for the top five, but I may push back a bit and say that it shouldn't quite be at number two and you're allowing yourself to be influenced by the experience of being there, which is perfectly fair. But uh, I do think, uh, in, in my mind, like Vasquez Marquez three is clearly a superior fight to Joshua Klitschko. Sure. Ah, what are they going to do? Fire me. As I like to say. <laughs> right. So, yeah, that ship has sailed. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Without us. Um, <laughs> number one, fight of the year, check. Round of the year, check. May 7th, 2005, Mandalay Bay, Las Vegas, Diego Corrales, KO10, Jose Luis Castillo, what is likely to remain the best fight I ever witnessed in person. So much has been said about this fight. I don't know if there's much more to add. Terrific fight, capped off by a legendary 10th round. Castillo had Corrales down twice and seemingly out before Chico somehow roared back, stopped him with a barrage against the ropes. Best Showtime fight ever? How about best fight ever? It's certainly in the conversation. 
Yep. And this is one where uh, I will not say that you are over elevating it because you were there live, uh, whether you were there live or you watched it on TV. This has to be number one. Uh, yeah, definitely greatest Showtime fight ever. We can have our disagreements because I was in person at the Gaddy War the one uh, the, over whether it's greatest fight ever, but greatest Showtime fight ever. Absolutely slam dunk number one here. Uh, and then what I have for the honorable mentions, and I wonder now, actually, if there's a few that I've forgotten that you remembered here, but I, uh, in no particular order. Uh, Evander Holyfield, Mike Tyson won. Iran Barkley, Roberto Duran. Marvin Hagler, John Mugabe, starting mm -hmm. as you mean to go on. Um, Marcus Maidana, Floyd Mayweather won. Or, excuse me, Floyd Mayweather, Marcus Maidana won. Right. Jarrett Hurd, Eris Landy Lara. Deontay Wilder, Tyson Fury won. Lucas Matisse, John Molina. What am I forgetting? Um, so interesting. You, you named a couple that I forgot. I didn't think of Matisse and Molina or, uh, there was another one you said right before that, that I, that I forgot, but, um, the ones that I had, uh, in my top five, uh, my, you didn't mention my three, four or five, although my four, I think you were very intentionally not including it. Cause it's another Vasquez Marquez fight and you didn't, but I actually, oh, okay. I put Vasquez Marquez two and three, both in my top five. Um, but the one I, that I have at number three that I thought might've been your number two, or at least would pop up somewhere on your list was the, the Ben McClellan fight. Um, tragic, oh God, tragic as it was. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, I blame Steve Farhood. If he didn't, uh, if he didn't uh, remember to include it uh, when you phoned a friend, then this is his fault. Um, I should have but... thought about that anyway. Oh my goodness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we both, we we both. Uh, there were, I mean, less thirty-seven years of great fights. Yeah. Uh, there's, it's easy to uh, have some slip through, and uh, especially if you sort of forget that it was a Showtime fight in a couple of cases. My number five is one that I am not surprised that you didn't mention. Um, it was a fight of the year. Uh, I believe 1999, and I just have a soft spot for this fight. Uh, Paulie Ayala, Johnny Tapia won. Um, oh, yeah. It's just like a, a bit of a forgotten classic that I love, yeah. and I slipped it in at number five. But then all my other honorable mentions pretty much, you, you know, had Hagler Mugabe just outside the top five, Duran Barkley, Joshua Klitschko. I actually think Holyfield Tyson won is a little bit overrated. Uh, it was. It's one of those fights that was amazing live, because you couldn't believe yeah. what you were watching, but doesn't really hold up too well on a rewatch. It wasn't actually terribly compelling action, um, but Fury Wilder won. And then the only other one I mentioned, I jotted down that you did not mention, nor should you have. It's not really a top 20 kind of fight, even never mind top five, but Maidana Broner. I thought it's just worth a mention. Uh, okay, it's, yeah, I thought about that. Yeah, yeah. It's as pleasurable a viewing experience yeah. as boxing has ever provided. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, valid. I they definitely occurred to me, and I thought, no, it wasn't yeah. quite. But yeah, you know what? It's 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 worth a mention. It's definitely worth a mention. Yeah. I'm furious with myself for not thinking about Ben McLennan. How could I not think of that fight? It yeah, and and it and it gets really tough then to like narrow it down to a top five here because yeah, I think between the ones that I'm included and you included and that we forgot and realized we shouldn't have forgotten and so forth, you end up with, yeah, a good solid 10 or so contenders for those top five spots. Wow. Yeah, indeed. And you totally cheated by using Vasquez, Marquez, two and three. So. <laughs> Listen, there were no rules that you couldn't. If those are two in there too. <laughs> yeah. You know, I do feel there's a drop off between uh, one, one and two, but I one one at least probably should get an honorable mention, but yeah. Yeah. All right, that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Many thanks again to uh, our, our good friend, uh, and always a delight, Barry Tompkins. Uh, yeah. We will be back next week 
hopefully with an interview that you're certainly not going to want to miss if we can pull that together. And uh, we will also have a preview of the final Showtime Championship boxing card. Until then, thanks as always for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be